If you're looking to buy or sell pre-IPO stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. Since 2009, SharesPost has transacted more than $4 billion in the top private tech companies. Proven, trustworthy, secure. Visit us at SharesPost.com. Coming up on Equity, Zooks' half-billion-dollar round, the latest in very, very large VC funds and startup liquidity, and Microsoft is worth $800 billion? It's almost that time of the year again. Disrupt SF is right around the corner and will literally be bigger and better than ever. We've outgrown the various piers that line the bay and have moved the show to Moscone West. Panels across two stages will include Aileen Lee, Reed Hoffman, Ellie Wheeler, Ashton Kutcher, Ben Horowitz, and Priscilla Chan, just to name a few. Sounds like a great lineup to us. And because we love you, our dear Equity listeners, we have a discount code just for you. Head on over to techcrunch.com slash events slash disrupt dash SF dash 2018 and enter code equity for 15% off the main ticket price. What savings? Welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Matthew Lindley, joined by Silicon Valley editor Connie Loises. Hi, everyone. Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief Alex Wilhelm. Hello. And we have our guest today is Renata Quintini, a partner at Lux Capital. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, cars. (laughs) (laughs) This week, no, it's not Uber, actually. Yeah, critically, this time it's not about Uber, which is a blessing. Uh, Um, We get complaints, IRL, if we talk about (laughs) Uber too much. So it is good to be back on uh, a new topic. So what's going on? Not scooters either, which is great. Um, So we have a a huge round for a self-driving car startup. This one is called Zooks. Uh, If you haven't heard of it, that's... Probably very intentional because no one has heard of it, or unless you're like in that weird Silicon Valley bubble that whatever. Um, anyways, so Zooks uh, is closing a $500 million raise, which is a lot of money, at a $3.2 billion post money valuation. Post money valuation. Which is also a lot of money. Uh, if this, if these numbers sound totally outlandish, they probably shouldn't because we had the, the last, you know, semi quasi famous stealth without a real product self driving car company was Cruise. Cruise was bought by GM, if you guys remember, for about a billion dollars. It was in uh, that range. Something, yeah, something crazy like that. Um, and the the plan is to deploy autonomous vehicles by 2020 for its own ride hailing service, autonomous cars, taxis, so on and so on and so forth. Um, so. So what's special about this company all is that it's it's building cars from the ground up. Yeah, is that correct? Yeah. So, okay. So there, so basically, it's it's interest. Zooks is interesting. Well, everyone's making cars, but Zooks I think is interesting because they're essentially going full stack. They like they want to build their own cars with autonomous software on top of it for ride hailing network. Car like vehicles. Yes. Right? Like yeah, they're, yeah. they're not building Toyota. They look Camrys. like they look like a Jurassic Park Jeep kind of kind but, of thing. But that, <laughs> they, they really I mean that's an early prototype, isn't it? So Renata yeah, it is. Lux is a, an investor and in Yes, we've been an investor since two thousand fifteen in the seed round and we've been following the uh, the ride closely and my partner Shaheen is actually closely involved with the company. I think the the, the unique thing about it is Zooks is projecting autonomy will be a reality, right? So taking from that reality, how does the car need to be? How does the service need to be? And then building everything from that ground up. Because if you look at a lot of autonomy companies today, they look the car as it is, and they basically replace the driver with intelligence and autonomy. Mm-hmm. And the that's completing the cars. Yeah, right, and that's right. completely different mm-hmm. than what Zooks is thinking, right? Uh, so they're thinking about... How can I maximize utilization of this vehicle? How can I maximize safety? And how can I produce these at the lowest cost possible? Mm-hmm. 
on one side of like on the technology side. And on the service side, they actually, we can't not talk about uh, autonomy without talking about Uber, so I'm sorry. <laughs> They're actually going after Uber. They right. want to become a service mm-hmm. and they want to own that whole transportation network and geographies. And that's the most ambitious company out there that's trying to do both the technology and the network. Well, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's I, I feel like we all remember Minority Report way back in the day. I'm going to bring that one up. The, the film, uh, the <laughs> film, um, which would, did a like a weirdly good job of predicting a lot of stuff. But one of the things that I remember now that we're talking about this is like the cars did not look like cars. They look like these like weird like elongated tubes that were going up vertical highways and things like that. And just like it was basically you look at it and you're like. Oh, like, I mean, I'm not driving this thing so it can look like whatever it wants to look like. So just, I mean, you know, let, uh, let's, let's think what it, what this should be if there's, if like, you don't even need to see the road and you, can you sit backwards? Can you sit forwards? So it actually makes sense, I think, to kind of think from the ground up. The other thing that actually stood out as you were talking about that is, uh, cars source a lot of parts, like from all over the world and certain car companies that also want to be autonomous have issues with this. Is there one in particular that you're thinking about there, Lindley? Uh, there's, uh, there, I feel like there's probably some company in the Bay Area that may be having issues with this, but I don't know for sure. So, um, <laughs> but um, so, so yeah. So it's again, it's like, and it's interesting because uh, when I was when I was reading about this, and I was when and I was thinking about this, the the model is actually like seems almost. Uh, You've seen it before in Katera, if you guys remember that company. Yeah. So it's like a full stack construction company. We go from the architectures, yeah. or the architects, all the way to like planning the actual buildings in the ground. And you're starting to see this this idea that you can you can combine all of this into a single vertical company. You don't need to actually have all these like disparate groups. My question is, is it just because the capital is there now? Well, I mean, they certainly have the capital. I mean, I just pulled up Katera. They've raised $1.1 billion. Zooks has raised, I figured, a $700 million yeah, 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 yeah. total. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah. if you think if you have ambition of this scale, the capital comes along with it. But that brings up a great point, which is, so what was this, like last year, maybe about a year ago, I think there was reports maybe in Axios that SoftBank was talking to Zooks. I don't know if that's ever was ever the case, but I had talked to somebody that was sort of familiar with uh, SoftBank's thinking, and they had said... SoftBank's not going to invest in this company. That could change, I guess. Things change. But if they don't, you're talking about how they want to go up against Uber. And I think the founders are sort of like famously pretty brazen. Uh, I think, I mean, it's very entertaining. Bloomberg had written this great profile of them. Um, (laughs) But they said, you know, uh, Uber, General Motors, everyone else is basically effed. Uh, but those are very deep-pocketed companies. So mm-hmm. as an investor, how do you think about the threat from SoftBank? Well, so I, I think it's more of a, a – the cool thing about Frontier investing in general is at some point when the technology starts to work, you actually have the proof in the pudding, right? So actually when you go and you see under the hood the things that Zooks has built mm-hmm. and will continue to build and how much better they keep on getting, right? And if you're an investor in the space, you're actually – seeing other companies or you're seeing the other people's evolution, mm-hmm. at some point it's going to become really clear how special and differentiated this is. Of course, we're not at the point where we can say game over, everything works, right? right? We're, but we're moving towards that, that point. I mean, Zooks right now works in extremely high density cities in, in a very complex environment. Mm-hmm. Right? And today you have uh, a lot of uh, AV efforts, but you know they're mostly you know in freeways or the density is a lot lower and less complex than what Zooks is able to do now, and you know arguably Cruise is at uh, at a similar level 
I haven't seen it in detail under the hood, but it is really hard. Yeah, I'm, you, seeing, I'm seeing cruise cars everywhere. But the Bloomberg reporter was very much dazzled by what the performance of the uh, Zooks cars right. in the yeah. city. But but he was in, a, a, I guess, a Highlander because Zooks doesn't have a license yet to use its own cars on the road. Mm-hmm. Can I ask, so as Matthew was saying, these are look sort of very futuristic. I don't know if I would have said, you know, to your point in my report, but no, like not Mad yet. Max. <laughs> like, I mean, they're, they're, they almost look like sort of like these big menacing golf carts. What does the final product look like? I know the front and the back look the same because it's supposed to sort of be able to move in, you know, many more sort of directions more easily than cars today. Uh, will it look like a car? Will it look like a giant pod? Will, will it look close to I what mean, it looks like now? Tim is a designer mm-hmm. uh, by experience, and he has very special plans. And there are some ideas and things that are under under the, the hood there to be seen. But the interesting thing about the HV models that were in the Bloomberg piece is that actually shows the modularity, right? Because they're actually thinking about how can I lower manufacturing costs? If I make the front look like the back, I don't have to, you know, tool and actually manufacture different parts, right? And actually a car can go in into a driveway and just pull right back out the the same way it got in. It doesn't need to make different turns and that increases utilization. There are a lot of things that they're doing. And you can also see the perception systems, the computing. So they're actually really building the foundation. Mm-hmm. And then the design is going to be something that's going to be stacked on top. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be pretty special. I mean, it's like it's uh, it's funny is that we, you know, when all these guys were raising money initially, Zooks way back in the day, Cruise, when they got bought, it's like, oh, yeah, like, you know, we're going to have like autonomous driving by, you know, 2020 and 2021. It's like. Oh crap! Like that's eighteen months away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is not that is far, not off far away. <laughs> it's amazing that's kind of crept up on us. But back to the SoftBank point. I mean, SoftBank has a bunch of money into Uber. Uber's had a lot of their own capital poured into self-driving-ish yeah. programs. But SoftBank has money into a bunch of other companies that I think have also had self-driving efforts. So maybe they didn't want to put money into Zooks because it would all get a bit complicated. Not that ride sharing, ride hailing as a market isn't already incredibly incestuous and complicated, but I mean, <laughs> at some point there is a line. I don't know exactly where it is, but maybe there is one step too far, even for SoftBank's uh, massive slush fund, aka Vision Fund. But I actually think when when you think about AV, right, it's actually going to be an interesting uh, dynamic because you're going to have the TNCs, the Ubers, the Lyfts, the Didis of the world, and then you're going to have the autonomous new tech companies, and then you're going to have the existing OEMs. And everyone is going to try to fight and get a piece of what it is, our daily commutes, Mm -hmm. right? And today you have uh, the networks that have the people, right? Mm -hmm. They they have our app on on the phone and they have our utilization, but they're expensive because it's people-driven, right? Mm -hmm. So they are – everyone's looking to lower their margins. So that's why they're looking for autonomy. How can we have more cars on the road more time and not not have to pay the driver as much, mm-hmm. right? And on the other hand, you're going to have these technology companies that are going to have the car ready to go, but like, okay, where's my user? Mm-hmm. So they're either going to become a service provider to Uber mm-hmm. or they're going to start their own thing to have their own audience, right? So how else are they going to monetize? And then on the other hand, you have the OEMs who are really great at integrating systems and building cars in the most uh, efficient even financially efficient way, mm-hmm. try to figure out how do we not get obsolete, right? Mm-hmm. How, how do we not become uh, the content creator? How we actually can keep up with the Netflix era, if you will, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's, it's going to be a very interesting dynamic to watch because you bet that Uber wants a lot of competition in one geography so people can bid up to take their route and they keep most of the money, yeah. right? But if I'm a, an, an autonomy company, I, I actually don't want competition. I want to be the sole provider to actually split that profit with the TNC. Yeah, and it's like I mean, all all of this like it, it's uh, I mean, I feel like it's easy to forget, but I, I remember uh, Dara Kosrashow he said at, at a, the Golden Conference, I think it was earlier this year or last year, um, like 
all of this networks, AVs, all this kind of stuff, like the literal end goal is I need the price per mile for a consumer to drop below yeah. the cost of owning a car. And like, that's it. Like, and so you, and there's, you know, 9 million different ways to kind of attack this. And Zooks is one. And like, it's, so it's like, it's, I think it's like, this is actually, you know, we can talk all about like level four autonomy and level five autonomy and all this kind of stuff. But it's like, again, we're getting pretty dang close to 2020. And so now we're going to start seeing those things actually show up and like now and now i mean we can we can do all these projections we can do all these testing we can throw a ton of money at companies like zooks or cruise or or whatever um but we're now we're gonna we're getting to the point where like is that dollar value actually going down like is it's where the actually, rubber yeah. meets the road oh. <laughs> oh. wow you know what we really need now i just discovered this we need a penalty box on actually <laughs> we need, like you know you know in hockey when if you get too salty and you punch someone in the face you have to sit on the bench for like two minutes we need that for like bad puns and awful jokes um uh. that was actually one of the worst we've had in some time. <laughs> but, but the really cool thing is now I now i don't have to work really hard on this segue so we've essentially transition time. transition time <laughs> Uh, we're we're going to uh, shift gears into the next conversation. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. Making the show worse uh, one comment at a time. So we're going to we're gonna pivot now in, uh, away from well-capitalized startups, talk about well-capitalized venture funds, because uh, Insight Venture Partners, one of the two IVPs out in the world, has uh, $6.3 billion dollars in new capital, which is, of course, a staggering amount of money. And uh, we all sat back and kind of thought about it for a minute. So what's going on? Yeah, it was announced today, just another huge fund. So Insight Venture Partners is based in New York, 23 years old, does venture capital and uh, private equity stuff. I don't think it necessarily does lots of buyouts, like some like the Vista uh, private equity, which we talked about last week. Everything tastes like chicken. Um, but it's a big firm. In some ways, it resembles... Anderson Horowitz, or maybe Anderson Horowitz in some ways uh, resembles Insight since Insight is uh, much older, but it has sort of a very uh, sort of expansive staff that helps with um, staffing and sales for its portfolio companies. It's a super active investor. I track fundings sort of on a daily basis, and I think this um, firm probably invests in a new company every week. Um, I think it's got about 150 active portfolio companies. Uh, it's very busy. But another really interesting thing about this particular fund is, um, as told to Forbes today, the um, uh, partners have invested the most amount of money of all of the sort of um, investors in this fund. Now, when you're talking about $6.3 billion, that's a lot of money. Typically in a fund or not, a, correct me if I'm wrong, um, I think institutional investors expect the general partners to throw in like 3% just to sort of show that they've got, you know, skin in the game, skin in the game aligned interests. But I'm thinking, you know, if these are the biggest investors, I mean, I think this must be like hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, potentially. What I read in the Forbes article wasn't that they were the majority investors in the fund, but that they had most of their own net worth tied up in it, which is. Slow. I think it might not be. I think it might be. Uh, one in the same. Actually, yeah, well, I'm no, not really, I, I'm, we don't know how rich they are. That's a very good point. But I think the the gist is though they have a lot of their money. In they this have fund, a lot of their so money in the fund. They expect it to do quite well. You don't just get two and twenty right. off your own capital. I think you get a hundred. You get eighty percent of the carry plus twenty. Ha ha ha. Right, right. Which always raises the question. You know, uh, you know. So Insight's just the newest. Sequoia raised a six billion dollar fund. It's on and um, it's trying to raise eight billion dollars. We've seen a number of giant funds. Index just raised a one point six five billion. Lightspeed one point. Nine seven five billion across a few funds, even scale four hundred, kind of small scale venture. Step right, it up. right, right. Yeah. So you know, you're always wondering, can these guys return these 
giant amounts of money <laughs> that are sort of on a, a level that we've never seen before. Renata, the VC. Yes. What do you think about these giant rounds or giant funds, I should say? Uh, well, I mean, it's. Um, Can so I ask how, how much is Lux investing? Four hundred. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I and didn't mean to make fun of four hundred million dollar funds. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, no, nothing. No, nothing. And I think it's mm-hmm. always a, a matter of actually tying fund size to strategy, mm-hmm. right? And 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 the whole point of uh, we're in this business to return. Uh, money and more back to our investors, and the rule of thumb is how can you get 3x net back to LPs? That's what they expect. Not not always what they get, but that's what they expect. Right. Um, but I think there are two different questions in your in your point, mm-hmm. right? I think the the one is how large does a fund need to be mm-hmm. for someone to execute well on their strategy? And I think the competitive dynamics have changed in the venture landscape quite dramatically. I mean, SoftBank is a game changer, no matter With how you look at it. With this $100 billion dollar fund, right? No matter how you look at it, right? It's uh, um, preempting rounds or increasing the size of rounds, and it, it changes the game, mm-hmm. right? So if you're, and, and, all, and also the VC returns, they're becoming even more and more outlier driven, and the outliers are getting bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. right? So you wanna have as much money as you can on your winners, and these winners are getting bigger and raising right. more money. So it becomes a little bit of a catch-22, right? Right. Uh, that more money you have, more money you invest, the larger things get, and the larger you need to become to continue to invest. Right. So there's a little bit of that going on. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you don't have the funds, somebody else will, and they're well, going to take it away from you. I was going to yeah. say, I talked to somebody close to Sequoia when, they, uh, when it came out that they were you know, closed on at least $6 billion. And my understanding was that that's exactly why they want to do it. They don't want SoftBank coming in, for example, or maybe even Insight Venture Partners coming in and saying, okay, you've done really well. Now we're hitting the you know global you know takeover the world phase and you're going to take you know go money from... Else. Yeah, go somewhere yeah. else. So I, I absolutely agree with that point. I mean, is this, is this largely like defending positions and things like that, though? I mean, obviously, like these rounds are getting massive. I mean, WAG, I think, is probably a really good example where... We, you know, this is like a dog walking company that was just like, whoa, $300 million. That's absolutely crazy. And if I'm like, we'll say, well, WAG is not a, not necessarily a good example, but if say like I'm an investor like Sequoia and SoftBank's going to come in and jack up a valuation on one of my companies like by like $20 billion, I need a ton of money to defend my position in it. Like if I have 15 points in that company, I'm still need a ton of money to actually ret- retain that 15 points, like, is that where most of this capital is going? Well, but it's a, it's a little bit of a weird dynamic, right? Because you're always thinking about how much capital do you need now and how much capital do you, are you going to need the next round? Mm-hmm. And you're always trying to balance how much, you know, dilution or valuation to take now that doesn't mess up the next round. Because if you go too far, it's just really, you're, you're probably looking at a flat or a down later. Mm-hmm. So it's not just defending my position. And I think VCs should actually look at what does a company need. And founders should look at what does a company need and kind of, uh, really raise for that. Uh, and sometimes the, some raises get more driven by supply of capital rather than, than the need of it. But it's just, there's a lot of money floating out there and it's not going to stop. I think VC is a, a positive return and, and, and money needs better return. So mm-hmm. the VC asset class continues to be really, really interesting. Right. Well, you know, another point that's interesting about Insight. So a lot of these... Um, early stage investors, these giant funds are good news because they can sell their shares to mm-hmm. uh, these um, funds. But in this case, uh, Insight said they've never sold any secondary shares, which I thought was pretty interesting because there's a really, I mean, that's it's, it's a huge 
you know, exit path for like everyone now. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, but I they ride, was... they ride until the end. So mm. today I got into a fight about this insight uh, fund with some people on Twitter today. And one thing that uh, <laughs> actually our, our very oh, first, I know <laughs> it's never, it's never happened before. I'm notorious for being polite and calm. Um, our very first guest on this show, Jason Lemkin and I mm. were talking about this and he was talking about insights positions in various companies. And he said that insight owned um, 46% of Pluralsight, which went public earlier this yeah. year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. so that's, I think the result of them not selling off secondary. They will essentially ride until mm-hmm. the end. Mm-hmm. And you know what $6.3 billion gives you? Time. You can just wait out things. And so right. why, if your LPs are, are aware that you're going to be on this kind of ride to IPO path, why not? Oh, yeah. Actually, it's a it's an investor in uh, Tenable, which is a Columbia, Columbia Maryland-based uh, cybersecurity company. And it's 16 years old. It's about to go public. Yep. So I, to your point. Oh, but, but it's a combination of waiting and also having the resources to do something about it, right? They have, what, 150 people that you said they, they deploy into companies and they'll help with sales. And they also have a little bit of a private equity approach to them that they can actually improve the margins, add a little bit of right, leverage, right. something that a traditional VC doesn't do day in, day out. Right. Right. So Great it's not point. just wait passively. Mm-hmm. It's actually mm-hmm. do something about it, change something about it. Right, right, right. Well, but oh, please, oh, no, I'm sorry. Well, I was going <laughs> to actually bring up this story that I read in the Wall Street Journal that I thought was so interesting just in terms of um, exits. So, you know, in the venture industry, it's always like, well, you've got to go public or you have to be acquired by tens of millions or f- four tens of millions of dollars or basically venture investors uh, let you die in the vine. Uh, this story highlighted something that happens behind the scenes and has happened uh, over the years. But um, I think funds are being raised uh, sort of in service to this exactly, which is that um, uh, founders are paying back their early investors because they um, – they sort of realize at some point they're not going to sort of produce a traditional venture-like return. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're you know strong revenue-producing businesses, yeah. but they're never going to be a unicorn. So they buy out their venture investors, and then they can sort of you know control their future. I just wonder how pervasive is this? Yeah. Uh, no, I think this is a this is a really interesting point, right? Because I think more and more the venture business in some some aspects is becoming a go big or go home. Uh, game mm-hmm. and you, in the meantime you have very viable companies uh, viable businesses that are growing you know 10 15 20 30 percent year over year that don't fit the box of this is going to be a billion dollar company mm-hmm. then what happens right mm-hmm. so historically you'd have the the VC fund that would be patient that wouldn't kind of part ways with that uh, on on the side you have these buyout funds that would go in and sometimes negotiate with the VC buy their stake out go into the cap table, do a little bit of uh, operating improvement, mm-hmm. put in some leverage into mm-hmm. the company and actually get a very decent return. Um, so the idea of let me buy out the VC is not new. Right. But what's happening now is, uh, you know, Indie VC or XLKKR, they launch these vehicles that will actually provide the founder with that capital mm-hmm. so that the founder can go, go on to the VC and say, okay, let me give you some liquidity. You can free up your time because mm-hmm. you're on a bunch of boards. Mm-hmm. You can get out of my board. Right. Uh, you know, go focus on other stuff, and I can actually get more ownership of my company back because the business is doing okay. Mm-hmm. We're never going to be the billion dollar company, but right. we're doing okay. So I think this is a change now that founders are more empowered to actually drive some of that stuff. Right. Whereas before was you know some of the private equity companies like XLKR, Vista, you know Rubicon or others doing out, outbound cold calling wrapping up the VCs and making it more of a uh, sort of VC-driven strategy in that sense. And I guess the debt has to be more attractive than sort of it has been traditionally. Exactly. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense to yeah, take Yeah, so it it's on. better than, than venture debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, would it be tied to MRR growth? Or would it be just a more traditional, like, just pay what, percent of debt? 
Well, some some debt that you can raise is tied to business performance, right? Okay. So if your company yeah. is growing at a certain percentage, you can raise right. a certain amount terms. of debt yeah. from yeah. different banks mm-hmm. around the area. Yeah. But I mean, that's that's usually better terms than traditional venture debt, I think. Yes, it's true. And and also, I think these uh, these funds they're more used under. So if you actually go look under the hood, the companies that are getting these types of uh, of loans, they are you know, SaaS businesses with recurring revenue or marketplaces, capital efficient businesses mm-hmm. um, that are very asset light. So on the other hand, you have, you know, an Excel KKR or these other companies that are very experienced in underwriting these uh, recurring revenue streams. Mm-hmm. So they can come in and say, I don't need an asset to back this up. Uh, and they're going to be putting out a, a payback schedule mm-hmm. because the, the company's going to have a recurring revenue, it's sometimes profitable, right. and they can actually get paid back over time. And it's super interesting. Uh, Indie.vc, it's actually something that you can also say, my company's never going to be a VC-backable company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let me go raise money from Indie.vc. Oh, from the outset. From the outset. Oh, interesting. Okay, and they'll give you uh, a profit participation deal with some equity option as well. So they'll say, you know, if you actually pay me, you know, pay me back three times my money on mm-hmm. the profit share, I'm done. Mm-hmm. And if you do that actually before three years, I will even lower my percentage of equity option that I have on you. So, I mean, is the, is this still a factor that is like our interest rate still a factor, though? Because like money is still quite cheap right now. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, but there's there's, you know, whenever I feel like whenever I've talked to venture investors or anything like that, that's like, oh, the black swan event will be interest rates going up. And then that'll change everything, and then nothing happens. So, so it's like I mean, all the, if all if all this money is like actively available, and if say I'm like a TPG or something like that, and I have and I have to deploy this capital somehow, um, is like is there any like what's gonna what would change the calculus in my head of deploying it to some safer asset class versus going to a founder and being like, hey, like you can buy out your stake, like I don't know, Lightspeed stake in your company for X million dollars of debt or something like that. Like, does that does that change the calculus at all? Um, no, I think you ha- I think you have a point, and we're probably going to see more uh, people providing this type of capital because there is a different sort of risk profile and a different payback that you get and, and interest that you get from these types of relationships. Um, yeah, I mean, if interest continues to go up, then you're going to have to price this up, and it will not be sustainable as a as a as an option. But I think more than how much do you get back from it is just really understanding that this is like a different mechanism, right? Because mm-hmm. here you have a founder that you're actually empowering them to go back to a VC, say, hey, let me buy you out, get you out of my board, and I'm increasing my equity stake from X to Y, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm redistributing that back into the company. So I think it's just a different mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, we need to move on from the late stage of startup to the late stage of public companies. But yeah, as a last point, though, I'm, I'm curious if there's enough kind of like these mid-quality SaaS companies for these large new funds to buy into, improve, and then sell off. Like, if you have to deploy $6.3 billion across just software companies, which is Insight's kind of core focus, mm-hmm. you have to money. find so yeah, many companies to put money into. And my contention is that there aren't as many of these kind of like even mid to high quality SaaS companies out there as people think, but I could be wrong about that. They are global. Well, at least I know they have an office in Europe or offices in Europe. I'm not really sure how active they are in uh, Asian also, but yeah, I'm sure I mean, but we'll of, see. I mean, they, they raise the capital with an intention to deploy it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. where they put it will be a big lesson to us about where things are mm-hmm. are hot. Yeah. Um, but it being earnings season, uh, <laughs> at long last, everyone's favorite part of the quarter. I hate the best, this part of the quarter. The best <laughs> few weeks of blogging in technology finance journalism. 
uh, for Microsoft. Alex. Let me make a mental <laughs> right, a right, note. Alex. It's for <laughs> Alex. <laughs> Look, if you don't like the numbers, you're just asking to be lied to, and we all know that. All right. <laughs> so Microsoft reported earnings. Can we go back to talking about Uber? Oh, we. <laughs> I would actually rather talk about the wall paint drying than go back to talking about Uber one more time. Okay. Uh, anyway, so Microsoft. Microsoft uh, they reported earnings hours ago. And actually, during the recording, I just checked the stock price. They've gone from being roughly flat after earnings to being up about 4%. So I'm presuming they dropped some good forward guidance. Haven't checked that yet, but I have a couple of numbers, and I thought we could chew on them for a minute, and then we could all say goodnight. Um, the biggest headline that we're seeing out of this is that Microsoft had uh, over $100 billion of revenue in its last fiscal year, I think for the very first time. So the scale of the company... Uh, is enormous. Revenue in the last fiscal quarter was $30.1 billion, up 17%. And then this kind of blew my mind. They generated about $10.4 billion of operating income off of $30 billion in revenue. So they've got a one-third operating margin at scale, about $9 billion in net income, $8.9 billion gap. Um, and then just some, some stuff that's cool. You know, uh, gaming revenue was up $643 million, which was 39%. I didn't know they had a bit that big of a gaming business. Um, their commercial cloud, which includes Azure, up 53% year-over-year to $6.9 billion in the quarter. Azure, their AWS competitor, was up 89% year-over-year. I got a bunch of numbers. Um, I'm just super impressed. I mean, we're, I was kind of walking into this earnings cycle curious if the biggest technology giants were going to stumble and then kind of take away some of the sheen that tech stocks have had in the stock market, bringing down sentiment across the market, even trickling mm -hmm. back into early stage. But uh, nope, nope, not this time. Yeah, I mean, so, it's like... I mean, when I was when I was doing the, the like looking at like the the uh, valuation and all that stuff for for Microsoft, like if if someone told me that Microsoft would be up there with like Amazon and Google and Apple chasing a trillion dollars like two years ago, we would have laughed. Yeah, probably. Like, we would we would have been like, you are out of your you are out of your dang mind. There's like Microsoft is like a PC company, or like you know obviously they have like. Office and the rest of that stuff, but like Microsoft is like never gonna hit a trillion dollars, and now it's like, I mean, it's you know two hundred billion dollars, but that is like you know we saw like we saw with Apple, that they're, is they're not worth that far over eight hundred billion. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. worth eight hundred and eight before this four percent yeah. bump. But I mean, think about what's driving them now. It's essentially their high margin services businesses, like yeah, Azure and SaaS. Office two sixty five. Yeah, and who do they make CEO? Well, they're a cloud guy. Yeah. So I'm not shocked that the, the cloud business is doing well. They didn't take you know the guy who made the first Surface and be like, aha, you're the new CEO. Yeah. We're going in hardware. Yeah, I, but that I mean, did not happen. Like Microsoft was a company that was like flat for like a decade. Well, and then, their share price was flat. They were actually yeah, growing yeah. in scale. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah right, 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 right. But but now I mean, then you look at like you clock it back two years and the stock is what up what like 85 percent 90 percent or something like that yeah so it's up a lot if you look at a stock chart of microsoft in the last couple of years it's essentially straight up um like netflix did that for a while amazon's mm -hmm. been doing something similar um e eventually this will stop something will happen things will slow down yeah, i mean what with Apple. Yeah. this feels a lot the tech industry feels a lot like bitcoin december 2017 right now <laughs> it's going up like mad everyone knows it's going to slow down eventually when and so everyone's still playing the game, hoping to not get caught holding on to the veritable warm potato. Mm -hmm. But in this case, Microsoft had a good quarter. Well, but I think the secular shift at Microsoft is important, right? Like you said it yourself, it went from uh, mostly hardware-driven business to more of a software-driven business. Even if you look at the gaming revenues, it was an Xbox hardware that was driving. It was mm -hmm. actually the Xbox Live, Xbox yeah. Live on online network, right? And the role of the LinkedIn acquisition to you know, a, a network completely 100% um, 
SaaS based mm-hmm. is just really changing the quality of the revenues of the business. And when you have that in a monopolistic position, it just keeps on compounding. Yeah, I no. still I hate LinkedIn. I really wish somebody would. I love LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Do you? Oh, God. Okay, so I'm with Connie on this I one. Hate it. Oh man, you it, guys are weird. It's one of the worst pieces of software <laughs> I, I've ever had. In this I, I actually followed um, the. Um, uh, model of one of our guests recently and I just accepted, you know, as reporters we get lots of requests. I mean I just accepted oh, like so a thousand requests today. Yeah. I was like, I don't even care. I don't know. I don't care. I don't know. I don't know. Like I know like one percent of my LinkedIn re- you know context. Mm. Like what what's the difference? Well I, I have bad news. LinkedIn revenue is up thirty seven percent year is over it year. Really? Wow. Yep. I just I just pulled that up. Yep, yep, yep. Um which is annoying because I'm trying to use it thirty seven percent less. <laughs> <laughs> but the I, pros are using it thirty seven percent more. So I, I I have a suspicion about why. I think the the, the talent and hiring in Silicon Valley is so bad that yeah. every recruiter is just I, on their yeah, spam. Right, 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 yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. When the economy slows down, as it will eventually, that will get taken. Well, I mean, it's like, I mean, I've, I've, when before Microsoft bought them, this was what, like 2016, uh, mid-2016 or something around that time. There there was a moment where, you know, everyone was kind of looking at LinkedIn and being like, oh, this is a social network. This, I mean, there's a, like there's elements of professional networks, elements of professionalism to it and that kind of stuff, right? But it's a social network. And then its earnings came out and it was like, actually, we're SaaS multiples. <laughs> Like the stock fell like fifty percent or something crazy like that. Then Microsoft bought it up. It's like okay, straight yeah. You don't want to go from Facebook but, multiples to box multiples. But, but no, it's like, but it's like. <laughs> I mean, for I mean, Microsoft like Microsoft has this 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 uh, this web of SaaS companies, and you know, what do they have with LinkedIn? Well, they have one of the largest customer acquisition channels on the planet. That's a SaaS business. Yes, that's not a, that's not a social network. And that's why I don't get why M twelve doesn't get more love in the venture scene. But that's not our problem. The, the thing I'll take away from this is, you know, there is still a ton of money for getting old stuff onto the cloud, mm-hmm. and Microsoft. Microsoft, Amazon, and Google Cloud are going for yep. it. And so if you're a startup, just keep in mind that uh, that particular market progression because it's still going on today at a huge scale, mm-hmm. yeah. which I think we all in Silicon Valley thought it happened three years ago. Yeah. And I think it's going to be 10 more years for a lot of the rest of the country and the world. Yeah, I mean, I think that like that's obviously... Um, I, we might be slightly underestimating it, but like one of the things that I kind of track these days is like startups that are focusing on migration like migrating like mm. all my offline stuff onto the cloud and you because, say i'm boring yeah <laughs> <laughs> no but it's like it, it like it is like it is like a like i mean they're you know aws is a 10 billion dollar business azure they will never tell us what it is so you should probably tell Come us what Frank it is. yeah yeah google cloud is a, is a few billion like that in the grand scheme of things these are like this is a fraction of how big they will be. Right. So, and there's players right now like Ignite that are working on kind of yeah, hybrid, yeah, 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 yeah. public-private cloud yeah. solutions. Anyways, we should leave it there for this week. Thank you all for coming in. Thank and you, we're Fernanda, back for in. coming. Yeah, thank, thank you for so. having me. It was fun. <laughs> you were fun. All right, back in a week. Bye. 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 All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and a big thank you to Matthew Lindley, Connie Loizos, our producer Christopher Gates, our executive producer Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week. Bye.